good morning, church. It is great to see you guys, those of you that are joining us online over in the sanctuary and up in True Worth. So, Rick's on the video. That can mean only one thing. Rick is not here, is he? If Rick is not here, you get me. Yay! I shamelessly started my own clap. Really quick, because if I don't mention it, you're going to notice it. I'm nursing a sprained foot, and so I'm going to be walking even more strange than normal. And if you see me walk on a normal day, you know I walk pretty strange. Hey, uh, really quick, raise your hand if you like gifts, if you like presents. I can't believe there are some hands that aren't raised. Okay, in addition to gifts, raise your hand if you also like to drink coffee. Kristen, come here. You get a gift. That's it. That's it. That's it. You don't have to speak. Don't worry. You see, sometimes it pays to uh, participate in worship, right? Why do, why do we like gifts? Why, why do we like them? Well, we like them because, well, we don't see them coming often. Like Kristen, you didn't know coming to church today that you were going to get that gift. It just happened. It was unexpected. So gifts are great when we don't see them coming. Or when we don't earn them, when we don't ask for them. All of these things, they make gifts really good. But the best gift is what I'm going to call the impossible gift. My hope today is that we all receive this impossible gift. But first, a story. And I'll just give you a heads up, this is not a happy story. It's a story of twins, Eva and Miriam Kaur. In May of 1944, they were probably four years old at the time. They, along with their family, they were taken by way of cattle car to Auschwitz, a concentration camp. And very quickly, they were separated. Eva and Miriam and their mother were separated from the rest of their family. They'd never see him again. Moments later, a Nazi soldier walks by and sees Eva and Miriam and, and hollers out, hey, twins! Quickly, soldiers come by and they rip Eva and Miriam away from their mom. All of them crying, all of them confused. They didn't even get a chance to tell their mom goodbye. They, they didn't know that at that moment, that was the last time they would ever see her again. You see, Hitler was consumed with this idea of creating a master race. And his doctors, they were curious about twins. Was there something unique about twins that made them special? They were known as the Mangala twins. They were named after Dr. Mangala, who was the head Nazi doctor. And he was known as the Angel of Death. You can imagine how he got that nickname. But because of that, Eva and Miriam survived the fate of the rest of their family. But they would also spend the rest of their time during World War II in this concentration camp, enduring countless experiments, countless injections, so many things pumped into their little bodies. Now, this sounds some kind of horrible, doesn't it? And you might be asking yourself, Chris, why on earth would you begin a sermon with such a depressing story? And the answer is this. In order to talk about the impossible gift, we have to first come to terms with unthinkable circumstances, because it's the unthinkable circumstances 
that bring about the impossible gift. And the impossible gift is forgiveness. Let's pray. Father God, we, we know that your ways are not our ways. That you love in ways that we can't imagine. You forgive in ways that, that just do not make sense to us. Father, you have mercy for people and for situations where we just cannot understand. So, Father, we pray that in all that we do today and all that we say and all that we hear, that above all, we listen and we hear your voice of mercy, of forgiveness, speaking into our lives and speaking through our lives to the lives of those that we encounter. In your son's name, amen. I want you to hold on to that story. We'll come back to Eva Kaur. I promise I'm not going to leave that story there. But for now, open up your Bibles. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. They'll bring one to you. Open it to Matthew chapter 18. And what we get here in chapter 18, this is Jesus' long-winded response to arguably the dumbest question in all of Scripture. He gets asked this question. Imagine the disciples at the beginning of this scene, they walk up to Jesus, and in all their brilliance, they say, hey, Jesus, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Think about that question. Who's going to be the greatest? So tell me, raise your hand if you've ever fallen asleep in class. Have you ever done that? Have you ever fallen asleep in class? Yeah. Okay, so I'm not alone. It's not that big of a deal, right? You fall asleep in class, okay, not a big deal. Until the teacher calls on you. That ever happened to you? You're asleep in class, and you're woken up by the sound of the teacher saying your name. What do you do? Well, you get up probably blurt out some incoherent response and just pray that that moment passes quickly, right? But imagine the teacher. Imagine the frustration the teacher must feel in that moment to be up there teaching and realize that you were asleep the whole time. I have to imagine Jesus felt the same frustration when he was asked this question. Who's going to be the greatest? I imagine Jesus biting his tongue, wanting to look at the disciples and be like, have you been asleep this whole time? Do you not get it? Have you not heard anything I said? I just told you, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to pick up your cross. Do you still not get it? You're asking the wrong question. Who's going to be the greatest? You're thinking about yourself when you ought to be thinking about each other. You ought to be thinking about relationships. You ought to be thinking about community. And so Jesus spends the rest of chapter 18, showing the disciples what true community looks like. And the whole chapter centers on three themes, humility, purity, and forgiveness. Today, we're going to talk about forgiveness. Now, in your sermon notes, you'll notice it's blank. You just got one line down the middle. What I want you to do as we talk about this today, that left column, I want you to connect with parts of your life, parts of your past where you still, when you think about it, you feel guilt and you feel shame. Things that you haven't let go of. I want you to write that down. Places where you struggle to receive forgiveness. And then on the right column, I want you to connect with those people or that situation or those things in your life that as soon as you think about them, you think about that situation, immediately you get angry. What are those areas that you harbor resentment, that you have a hard time forgiving others? 
Now, I want to pick up there at verse 21. It says, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, I don't want you to get hung up in the numbers there. I don't want you locking in on that 77 thinking that that's the magic number, thinking that, okay, so 77, that's it. Once I get to 78, I'm done. I no longer have to forgive. Like, that's not what Jesus is saying. What he's saying is there's no end to the amount of forgiveness that you're supposed to offer. But what I want to point out is the question that Peter asks, because I think it's a trap. I think it's a trap that many of us fall into. I see this all the time when I'm talking with couples that are struggling in their marriage. I'll find this issue lurking underneath. I'll talk to somebody and they're in, they're in a struggle in their marriage and they'll say something like this. We got in a fight. And now they're probably doing this. Or my spouse is probably saying that about me. What are they doing? What's Peter doing here? Imagining conflict. Like if you want your marriage or your relationships to instantly get better, stop imagining conflict. I can't tell you how many times I see this issue pop up. One of my favorite quotes, it comes from a first century Roman philosopher named Seneca. And he says this, he says, we suffer more in imagination than in reality. Now, how true is this? For many of us, we, our imaginations, they get the best of us. And our relationships, they suffer for it. How many of you, you've been in an argument with your spouse, and the next day, you start imagining how your spouse is responding to that argument? You start imagining the things that they're saying about you to their coworkers or to their friends. And the next time you see them, you treat them as though all of those imagined scenes are real. And you begin to tear apart your marriage or your relationships all because of imagined issues. Think about how much sleep you've lost through the years over things that never happened. You want to know how to drain your life? Start with losing sleep over imagined issues. Look, Life is tricky enough on its own. It's going to throw you enough challenges. It doesn't need you to make up, to invent challenges on your own. You want your relationships to get better? Stay in reality. Operate in reality. Operate on what you know, not on what you're afraid of. So Peter, here he is. He's imagining conflict. And he wants to know... How many times does he need to forgive? What are the rules on forgiveness? How much forgiveness does he need to offer? Now, it was a custom in the Hebrew tradition to forgive somebody three times for an offense. Three times, that's it. Four, you're, you're off the hook. That was the magic number. So I imagine Peter, probably just a little arrogant in the question, coming to Jesus, he's saying, hey, hey, Jesus, how much should I forgive? How about seven times? That's pretty good, right? I mean, tradition says three. I'll do you four better. Seven. How about seven times, Jesus? Maybe he's thinking, you know, by going above and beyond the tradition, hey, maybe, maybe I'm going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Imagine his response when Jesus says, seven times? No. 
How about 77 times? What do we learn from this? We learn that Jesus is always going to crush our expectations of mercy, of forgiveness for us. He's always going to go beyond it. Guess what? He expects us to do the same. Now, we can't just lump all of the blame of this question onto Peter because chances are he's just the mouthpiece for the disciples. He's, he's just the guy that had the nerve to come up to Jesus and ask him the question. But think about it, this idea of who's going to be the greatest. How much forgiveness should I offer? Like these are the sort of things that the disciples were curious about. Now, thank goodness, so many years later, we no longer struggle with that in the church. We don't have to worry about a pecking order, about outdoing somebody else, or this idea of self-righteousness and rules. We no longer struggle with that in the church, do we? Yes, we do, don't we? So many years removed, and it appears the only thing that has changed is our technology. Human behavior remains, in many ways, to be the same. But think about the questions. Who's the greatest How many times do I need to forgive? Their focus is on one thing. Salvation. How am I getting into heaven? Who's getting in? Who's not getting in? I can't tell you how many times I get asked theological questions. I become aware that at the root of the question is this desire to know. Am I going to heaven? Who's getting in? Who's not getting in? Like, those are fair questions. I understand your desire to, to wrestle with that, and I'll wrestle with that with you. But the problem is this, as it relates to forgiveness, here's the problem. Forgiveness was not intended as a tool to get you into heaven. Forgiveness was intended as a gift to bring heaven into your world. Do you understand the difference? So how does Jesus answer the question? Typical Jesus fashion, he answers with the story. And I want to paraphrase the rest of chapter 18. So you have a king and a servant. And the servant had accrued a debt in the amount of 10,000 talents to the king. And the king was furious. He demanded repayment. He even threatens to throw the servant and his family in prison to pay back the debt. And the servant quickly humbles himself. And he begs for mercy. He begs for more time. And the king does the impossible. He doesn't just grant the servant more time. He forgives the debt altogether. Wipes it clean. So the servant, so excited, so overjoyed by this unexpected mercy, do you know how he responds? Well, the story continues. He becomes aware of a debt that's owed to him by another servant in the amount of 100 denarii. What does he do? Does he offer that same mercy to this servant, just like what he had received? No, he doesn't. He follows through. He actually has that servant and his family thrown into jail. How do you like that? Look, I'm willing to bet the sweat was still dripping off of his brow out of fear from his encounter with the king. And he's already forgotten about the mercy that the king had showed him. Now, here's, what's, here's what makes the story really interesting for me. How much was the debt? So he owes the king 10,000 talents. So let's put that in perspective. In our terms, that equates to roughly 15 years worth of debt. 
For some of you, you're looking at over a million dollars worth of debt. So you can understand why the king begged for mercy. He knew that debt was not payable. He knew that he and his family would spend the rest of their lives in prison. But what about the debt that was owed to him by the other servant, the hundred denarii? That equates to roughly three months, just over three months of debt. Fifteen years of debt versus three months of debt. Quite a bit less, isn't it? Why couldn't the man who had been forgiven 15 years of debt not be able to forgive somebody else three months of debt? The better question is, why can't we? I want you to take a moment for honest reflection. Be honest with yourself. What are those grudges that you're still holding on to? Who owes you something that you haven't yet forgotten about. Look, if you can honestly say that you don't struggle with this at all, that it's really easy for you to forgive somebody, then congratulations, you're Jesus. (laughs) But for the rest of us, those of us who are not Jesus, we're going to struggle with this. We're going to struggle just like the unforgiving servant because we're pretty good at keeping a relational bank account, aren't we? We're pretty good at balancing that bank account. We're pretty good at making sure that we even the score. If you hurt me, then I'm coming for you. If you insult me, I'm blocking you out. And what happens to us when we do this? What happened to the servant? Where does he end up? The end of chapter 18, he ends up in prison. And this is exactly where so many of us live right now, imprisoned by our anger, by our resentment. Do you want to know what a drained life looks like? That's it. Ask yourself, what do you want people to say about you after you leave this life? Do I want them to say, you know, Chris, he he was a bitter old man. He was full of resentment. He was a hard guy to be around because he always had to be right. He always had to even the score. Or do I want him to say, you know, Chris, he was a a pleasant guy. He was a fun guy to be around. He knew how to show mercy. He knew how to forgive. Now, I'll be honest with you. That question has haunted me for some time now. If you knew me 15, 20 years ago, you know that that's been a struggle for me. And I can't tell you why, other than it's my own personal brokenness. It's a thorn in my side. And it still is. It's something that I'm always going to have to keep before me. But church, this is why we say it's so important to be connected to people that you know, that you love, that can speak truth into your life. Do you have those people that can call you out? I get to talk to people all the time. I get to talk to Rick and Jeff and Judy and different people that, that know me. And they know the man that I want to become. And they know this issue. And anytime they see it popping up, they call me out on it. They say, hey, Bowen, you're slipping here. What's going on? But I figured out something that's really helped me. It's really hard for me to hold on to my resentment, to be angry, when I reflect and I remember the grace of God in my life. The fact that I'm standing here right now with all of you is only, and I mean only, by the grace of God. And every night, 
I get another reminder. Every night when my little Ava runs up to me, and she runs and she jumps into my arms and she gives me a hug and kiss goodnight. And every night when I get to lay down with my son Aiden and he tells me about his day. Look, I'm not the perfect dad. I've blown it more times than I can count and I'm going to blow it again. But even when I do, every night my little Ava will run. She'll jump into my arms, give me a hug and kiss goodnight and say, I love you, Daddy. And every night, my son will lay down with me and he'll tell me about his day and he'll let me pray with him. Even though I screw up as a dad, they still choose me. Every day, they choose me. It's hard to be resentful. It's hard to be angry in those moments where my kids teach me about the grace of God every day, grace upon grace. What about you? Do you have those moments in your life where you received mercy in powerful and transforming ways? Moments where you you deserved judgment, but you received grace. I want to answer that for you. Yes. Yes, you have. How often do you keep those moments before you? Like, I know it doesn't sound like a fun thing to do to keep reminding yourself of your past, but you have a choice. You can choose on what you focus on when you think about your past. You can focus on your guilt, or you can focus on the mercy of God. And this is so important, because when you look at your past, if all you see is shame and guilt, and guess what? You don't want to think about your past anymore, do you? And if you don't think about your past, then you forget. You forget about the mercy of God. I wonder... If the servant, if the unforgiving servant, if he forgot about the mercy that he had received because he felt shame and he felt guilt. And maybe, just maybe, the reason he couldn't forgive his fellow servant was because he didn't deal with his past. And when he saw the other servant, it reminded him of his own past and it angered him. But here are the good news. You don't have to be imprisoned by your guilt or your shame or your past. Your past isn't going to change, but how you think about it can. Your past and your mistakes, they can can either be an open wound or they can be a scar. When you look at your past and all you see is shame and guilt, your past mistakes are an open wound. And whether you think about it or not, whether you deal with it or not, it's an open wound and it's just draining your life away from you. It's hemorrhaging your life. But when you do the work, when you, when you think about your past and you choose to focus on the mercy of God, then that open wound, it becomes a scar. It becomes something that heals, something that has a story, something that you can look at and point to without fear that it's going to open up again, something that you can look at and say, I remember that. I remember that painful experience. I remember that painful moment. But mostly, I remember the mercy of God. He got me through it. I'm not there anymore. I'm not that person anymore. And then you take your scars and you help other people with their open wounds. And when we do the work, when we deal with our past, 
when we allow the mercy of God to come in, then we become free, no longer in prison to that situation or to that mistake. But when we forget, when we forget about the mercy of God, when we forget about what we've received, then just like the unforgiving servant, we remain in the prison of bitterness and resentment. And we don't have the ability to show mercy to anybody else. Now, if you're early on in your Bible journey, I want to give you a helpful tip. You want to pay attention to the words that Jesus says. If Jesus says something, pay attention. If Jesus says something twice, you really want to pay attention. In chapter 9 of Matthew... Verse 13, he says this. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Guess what? You flip over, just two pages. Sorry, one page. Chapter 12, verse 7, he says it again. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now, he's quoting a passage in Hosea, and there in, in chapter 12, he's, he's dealing with the religious leaders who were all upset with him and his disciples because his disciples, they did the unthinkable. They plucked grain on the Sabbath. How dare you? How dare you violate our laws? How dare you violate our traditions? And Jesus says, you don't get it. You claim to know the law and the prophets, but you missed the point altogether. What do you think God cares more about? Your traditions? Your laws? How to offer a sacrifice? How to observe this? How to observe that? When to do this? When to do that? Do you think he cares more about that, or do you think he cares more about how you treat each other? What do you think God cares more about? I love how he finishes that statement in in chapter 9, verse 13. He follows it up with this. But I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Aren't you glad Jesus came to call the sinners? I know I am. You see, this is why I think he chose the disciples that he did, the the nobodies, the outcasts, the sinners. I think he chose them because he knew they understood mercy. But the self-righteous, all they knew was how to be right. Strict obedience. Not love, not mercy. I want you to think about your list for a moment, those two columns. Because, you see, they, they're talking to each other. They inform each other. How you think about your past is going to inform how you deal with others. If when you look at your past, all you see is shame and guilt, and chances are... That's how you're going to understand God. And if you understand God as shame-giving, as vengeful, then chances are that's how you're going to treat others. Now, I don't know who needs to hear this, but you need to know that sometimes forgiveness does not mean reconciliation. Sometimes you have to have these boundaries from toxic people and toxic relationships. And I get it. Some of you have been hurt in really deep 
painful ways. And as you're sitting around, the, the idea of forgiving them and letting that go, like you can't even fathom that. And that's okay. If that's where you are, for now, that's okay. But let me suggest this. If you've, if you've created physical boundaries from a person or a situation, but you have yet to offer them forgiveness, I want to suggest that while you've done a good job of creating physical boundaries, you've done a terrible job creating emotional boundaries. Physically, you're keeping them away, but emotionally, they are invading your life and wrecking it in all sorts of destructive ways. You see, sometimes forgiveness is how you create boundaries. It's how you create that safe emotional space where that person or that situation can no longer hold on to you. It sets you free from that person and that situation. Look, we we began this series drained because we wanted to focus on these areas of our lives that cause us a lot of pain. Guilt, shame, regret, self-righteousness, bitterness, resentment. These are the things that they're not just going to take your life, uh, they're not going to just drain you, they're going to take your life away from you. Uh, you. You might still have a heartbeat, you might still be walking around, but you're not really living. Like if you want to fill your bucket, maybe you start with forgiveness. Maybe you start with those places in your life that you haven't thought about for a while, those areas of guilt and shame that you don't know it, but you're still carrying it because you haven't allowed the mercy of God in to free you from that. Or maybe you start with that person or that situation that as soon as you think about it, man, you're, you're angry right away. Look, I get it. Forgiveness is it's not easy stuff. It, this is hard work. It's really hard. But guess what? It's worth it. Now, we began with a story of Eva Kaur. I told you we would come back to her, and so we will. Fifty years later, she gets the chance to confront a Nazi doctor at Auschwitz the concentration camp where she spent so many years. She gets the opportunity to ask him questions about, did he know what she endured, what her family endured? Did he really know what was going on? And she gets to journey towards her own freedom from those years. She also gets to confront the angel of death, Dr. Mangala, and work towards forgiveness. Check out the rest of her story. And I didn't, didn't plan to ask him any of these questions. Suddenly, I am asking him, you were in Auschwitz. Did you ever walk by a gas chamber? Did you ever go inside the gas chamber? Do you know how the gas chamber operated? And he said, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He said, this is a nightmare that I live with every single day of my life and went on describing the operation of the gas chamber. He was stationed outside looking through a peephole while the gas was coming down and people were dying. When everybody was dead and nobody moved, he knew that they were dead and he signed one death certificate. No names, just the number of people that were murdered. 
and I asked him to go with me to Auschwitz in 1995. Then we would observe 50 years to the liberation of the camp. Because I wanted him to sign a document, just what he told me, but I wanted it signed at the ruins of the gas chamber in Auschwitz. And he agreed immediately. I will have an original document signed by a Nazi. And if I ever met a revisionist who said the Holocaust didn't happen, I could take that document and shove it in their face. I wanted to thank this Nazi doctor for his willingness to document the gas chamber operation. I didn't know how to thank a Nazi. I didn't tell anybody about it because even to me it sounded strange. I didn't want anybody to change my mind. After 10 months, one morning I woke up and the following simple idea popped into my head. How about a letter of forgiveness from me to Dr. Munch? I knew immediately that he would like it and that was a meaningful gift. A Auschwitz survivor gives him a letter of forgiveness to a Nazi doctor. But what I discovered for myself was life-changing. I discovered that I had the power to forgive. No one could give me that power. No one could take it away. It was all mine to use in any way I wished. And that became an interesting thing because as a Victim of almost 50 years, I never thought that I had any power over my life. Now, I began writing a letter, and I didn't know how to write a letter of forgiveness. And it took me four months to write it. And then I thought somebody might read it, and I, I, my diction in English is good, my spelling is not. So I wanted my former English professor to correct my spelling. So I called her. We met three times. And third time she said to me, now, Eva, very nice. You forgive this Dr. Munch. Your problem is not with Dr. Munch. Your problem is with Dr. Mengele. I was not quite ready to forgive Mengele. She said to me, okay, I have been meeting with you, correcting your letters. Now I want you to do me a favor. When you go home tonight, pretend that Mangala is in the room and you are telling him that you forgive him. I want to find out how would it make you feel if you could do that. Interesting idea, I thought. And when I got home, actually, I did something else. I picked up a dictionary and wrote down 20 nasty words, which I read clear and loud to that make-believe mangle in the room. And at the end, I said, in spite of all that, I forgive you. Made me feel very good that I, the little guinea pig of 50 years, even had the power over the angel of death of Auschwitz. So that is the way we arrived in Auschwitz 
Dr. Munch came with his son, daughter, and granddaughter. I took my son and my daughter. I read my declaration of amnesty, which is a very good document. And uh, I signed it. Dr. Munch signed his document. I felt free, free from Auschwitz, free from Mengele. So now that I have forgiven him, I knew that most of the survivors denounced me and they denounce me today also. But what is my forgiveness? I like it. It is an act of self-healing, self-liberation, self-empowerment. All victims, all hurt, feel hopeless, feel helpless, feel powerless. I want everybody to remember that we cannot change what happened. That is the tragic part. But we can change how we relate to it. Just imagine that, a Holocaust survivor forgiving the very people that had tortured her all those years. You understand now why forgiveness is the impossible gift. I know that when, when many of you, when you come to the table and when you look at the cross, the first thing that you see is you see sacrifice. And if you do, that's okay. Hold on to that. I'm not going to take that away from you. But I'll tell you, when I come to the table and when I look at the cross, the first thing I see is mercy. When Jesus broke the bread and told his disciples, he says, this is my body broken for you. I see this as mercy. And when Jesus took the cup and he said, this is my blood that I freely spill for you. I see this as forgiveness. So we have two powers to choose from. We have the power of anger, the power of resentment, the power of bitterness, the power of grudges, the power of self-righteousness, the power that will take our lives away from us. But we have the power of forgiveness power of mercy, the power of freedom, the power to experience the resurrected Christ. A wise man once told me that radical forgiveness is the choice of the transformed heart. Now, I don't know where you are. I don't know what you're currently holding on to. I don't know what's, what's holding you down. Maybe where you're sitting right now, this idea of forgiveness, of letting it go, like you, you're not there, you can't do it. You're just not there. What I want you to imagine is that at this table, this is forgiveness. This is freedom. The invitation is to come to this table and experience the freedom 
of your past. And the invitation is to come, and as you receive, so you give. So if you're not in a place where you feel like you can really let it go, where you are, I invite you, if it's, if it's your own shame or if it's your own anger, whatever it is, as you're sitting, I, I invite you to imagine them in your hands and you're holding on to them because you, you're just not ready to let it go. But I also want you to imagine that this table represents freedom from that. And every step that you take, as you get closer to this table, I want you to imagine you're just gradually letting it go so that you can experience the mercy and the forgiveness of God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that, that you meet us at this table. We thank you that you came to us. You bridged the gap. You knew that we couldn't understand. We wouldn't get it. And so you gave us these, this concrete symbol of the sacraments so that we can understand the mystery of your love, of your forgiveness. So Father, it's my prayer that as we take of the bread, as we take of the juice, that we remember and we renew our understanding of your mercy for us so that we can then go take the experience of what we've had at this table and take that with us so that when people experience us, they understand your mercy again. In your son's name, amen.